Uh, the wilderness is the venue. The conservation and stewardship side is the act of service. And the growth aspect is the ability to come together and, and connect with yourself, connect to your fellow warrior, uh, you know, tribe members and, and connect to, you know, your communities ultimately is, is the, is the byproduct of that. But I just realized that land stewardship and conservation, the needs that are out there to continue to manage and protect and conserve and sustain these wilderness spaces. What an incredible group or community that, that we have as, as veterans and, and first responders to repurpose our, our lives of service in a way that, that is continuing to be meaningful and Two Wolf Foundation was born. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash. And this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. All right, Mr. Brian Flynn, how you doing, sir? Good. How are you doing today? Doing great. It's been, uh, been a blizzard here, but it doesn't seem to be wanting to stick around for very long. So now it's just cold and windy. Yeah, we are experiencing much of the same here in Western Montana. Big forecast for some heavy snow and some of the areas around us got hit pretty good. Uh, we woke up to about an inch of snow on the ground, but it's mainly just been the wind throughout the day. Yeah, I think it's really elevation dependent on this particular storm. I'm seeing, you know, 30 inches in some of the mountain ranges and you know, stuff above, you know, 6,000 feet, but the, the lower elevation stuff seems like it's just the spring snow. Yeah. We're, we're still adjusting to, uh, you know, I was told yesterday, welcome to fifth winter here in Montana. Uh, <laughs> we just, we just moved here to Montana. <laughs> we just moved here to Montana from South Alabama, uh, two months ago, we moved right in the middle of winter in February and, um, it's been a little bit of an adjustment for the family, but though it's been pretty mild so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, I mean, we had a couple of big storms, but nothing, nothing too crazy. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, uh, your military experience. You've had, you've had yourself quite a career. Yeah. The, uh, it's, it's been an adventure, um, sitting at about 19 years of, some form of service, either as a, as a soldier or 
as a civilian and a contractor, um, enlisted in the army, active duty in 2003. Uh, within days of the invasion of Iraq, I was a college student and just was overtaken with uh, the idea of going to war. Um, and I, and I, and I signed up. My my stepdad was my recruiter. <laughs> he oh, wow. uh, he was up in Indiana, <laughs> and I called him up and I said I want in. And uh, we did what was necessary to make that happen, and uh, ended up in Third Infantry Division at Fort Stewart, Georgia. Um, attended sniper school prior to that deployment, and in 2005, and uh, enjoyed. Uh, a very kinetic experience. Um, that first deployment in 2005, doing a lot of uh, counter IED sniper work and really invested myself into this new identity of, of being a soldier uh, prior to joining the army. And that first little bit of college, I was running with a bad crowd, making bad decisions. And the army was my escape of running away from that. And then it, it, it turned out that uh, it was, this new world for me where as long as I applied myself, you know, had incredible leaders. Um, and that deployment began to set the stage for a climb into the special operations community, uh, returned in 2006, went to the 82nd airborne, spent a little bit of time there, just long enough to train up for selection. Uh, and then went to the special forces assessment selection, uh, at the end of 2006 was selected, went through the Q course and ended up at 5th Special Forces Group uh, and spent a number of years there uh, until I separated from active duty military in 2014. Uh, just just a, rather about 12 years of, uh, of service and then became a SEER instructor. Uh, <laughs> there was a little bit of time in there, a little bit of break where I didn't work for the government. Uh, and that was on a, a dairy farm just south of Nashville, Tennessee. But uh, didn't last very long. We relocated, and I ended up in proximity to Fort Rucker, became a SEER instructor, worked there for a number of years before taking an Intel uh, intelligence analyst position at Fort Benning. And in that time, I realized I missed being a soldier, and I got back in and joined the Alabama National Guard to uh, serve with 20th Special Forces Group, and, and that service is ongoing. Nice. Uh, fifth group, I've got a a close friend who is in fifth group. Um, they're a counterterrorism unit, right? Uh, yeah, that, that fall counterterrorism falls under one of our, uh, special forces core mission set. Okay. What, and I'm not super skookum on sort of the roles and responsibilities and specialties of each special forces group. So what does fifth group do and what makes fifth group special and interesting? They're, they're highly decorated. Yeah. So, you know, fifth group, is mainly focused on you know middle eastern countries um you know my target assigned language that i that i trained in was persian farsi uh served with a number of arabic speakers um and you know any language throughout the middle east we have guys on on the teams that are uh that are assigned and and pursue being proficient in those languages um, across any special forces battalion, you're going to have a number of specialty teams, mountain warfare teams and dive teams and mobility teams. Uh, I was fortunate enough to spend my time in fifth group, uh, on a dive team and a mountain team, uh, which is 
where I just developed an absolute love of, of the mountains. We were, you know, we were at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, not a, not a very mountainous region, but on that mountain team, we would get to travel to some pretty incredible locations uh, to train in military mountaineering and high angle rescue and high angle shooting. And it just, uh, I, I just found that to be my happy place was, was in or around the mountains. Where did you grow up? I grew up uh, partially a military brat, so a little bit of all over. I uh, was, was born in California and spent some time in Colorado and Germany, uh, back to California for elementary school. And then uh, we relocated to northern Illinois, north of Chicago. Uh, talk about wrecking a kid's childhood going from the mountains and beaches of Southern California to Northern Illinois was a, was a, was a rough transition. Sunny in 75 to negative 46 degree wind chill coming off the lake. <laughs> yeah. That, that place will harden you up for sure. Yeah. So the, the love of mountains, that's a, that's just something that, that came naturally as you were exposed to it and diving in the military is, is not a, not necessarily a, a pleasant thing. I think that all of the swim schools, I consistently hear this throughout all service branches, that, that swim schools are the hardest of all of the schools. I would say that that's probably true. Um, I would caveat that I, I never attended CDQC or combat dive uh, course. I went through pre-scuba, but that was just prior to a transition to the mountain team. Uh, my couple years on the dive team, I had an incredible team sergeant that uh, recognized the, the need. I was an 18 Bravo weapon sergeant at the time. And in me going to that team non-dive qualified, it was to fill a vacancy. Um, and then we just went to work and, and over the course of that following deployment, um, you know, there were some train up aspects and prepping for dive school. And then a, uh, an opportunity presented itself for me to transition to the mountain team. And I never got to go to, to dive school. Um, I, my primary interest developed early on in, in reconnaissance and going through sniper school as a, as a PFC. Uh, my ultimate goal was to try to get onto a military freefall team with a, with a specialty in, um, SR special reconnaissance. I was able to go to freefall school and never made it to the halo team. There was just never in, in our company. It just never lined up, but I was extremely thankful and, and, and grateful for the experiences of, of the mountain team time. The, uh, the, the history of American mountain warfare is really interesting. If you get into the, the 10th mountain division and, and how those guys were originally stood up, we didn't know anything about skiing, uh, cross country skiing, climbing with skis as a country, you know, it's really not a skill that we had and we just pieced, pieced it together with, with athletes, most of them from Europe who could sort of train everybody up and operating in jungle environments is extremely difficult. I, I would say that a jungle environment, you know, is one of the hardest places to operate in, but mountain environments require a really special skill set, And there's a lot of, a lot of technical aspects to it. What do you feel like you learned as as somebody on a, on a mountain team uh, within fifth group 
that that hunters and outdoorsmen could benefit from some some skills that they don't necessarily have but could use man I, you know immediately what comes to mind is just terrain analysis um but i, I think that it, within the within the hunting world with all of the advancement in technology and all the different mapping softwares and apps that's kind of become uh, you know a go-to we used to pour over topographic paper maps uh you know pulled from the ranger stations or whatever you know whatever local stores and areas but now the assessment and the analysis of terrain um i think that uh is right up there as as just a commonality a given so the next bet would probably just be a continued assessment of your equipment the gear that you use i mean i know that being on a mountain team coming to that team new and walking into the into the equipment locker and just looking at all the boxes of stuff that I didn't know what it was um, over the, you know, over time and, and putting it in application and use, you begin to realize that the, what you have the ability to carry is what's going to save your life, save your buddy's life or save the life of it, you know, of an innocent um, given that you always plan or expect the worst to, to happen. So it's just a continued evaluation of the equipment that you have. And is it doing its job or is there something out there better uh, that's potentially lighter, more effective, more efficient? Um, and I think sometimes I know I do. I take for granted going into the deer woods that my same bag is probably the same bag it's been for five or six years uh, without really kind of digging into what what is out there that may benefit me uh, that I'm that I'm not looking at. Yeah, there's a real difference within the military world and the civilian world when it comes to gear, because in the military, you kind of get what's available. And in the Marine Corps, that's obviously something that the Army broke and handed down. And um, then we get to, you know, try and figure it out. And then we get blamed for breaking everything when it was, you know, used to start with. But, you know, that's a different subject. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> But, uh, but as a civilian, we get options, we get to, we get to shop around and you got to read blogs and listen to podcasts and go to forums and ask your buddy and, you know, go down to a, a local shop and see what they've got, see what you can even get. It's hard. It's almost harder knowing the full world of options than it is like, Hey, this is what you have to work with, figure it out. And, uh, we're going to give you like a, you know, 15 minute PowerPoint on how it works and best of luck afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree that there, you know, when when looking at the the vast array of available options, um, yeah, it can be overwhelming. And then there's that aspect of keeping up with the Joneses, right? What's the newest and hottest and latest and greatest? Um, and I, I guess it would just be an assessment of getting out and using what you have and knowing every in and out of it that you have the ability to put your trust and, and faith in it that it's going to function when you need it to. Yeah, for sure. And and test that stuff before it matters. Uh, that's something that, (laughs) that I I think civilians could, could do more of. Um, but what I didn't realize until I was in it is, is how many rehearsals, uh, we might do for a mission before actually stepping off to do it. And we could rehearse, you know, for, for weeks sometimes, and just go through the mission in the most realistic way that you could over and over and over and over again until you get so good at it 
that you can put a bunch of the activities that are required for that mission into a category that you don't have to think about. And then you can focus on how the situation is changing a little bit. Um, another thing that I think civilians could benefit from is learning how to navigate at night. I see a lot of dudes come, <laughs> coming off hillsides in the dark and they get themselves in trouble. And navigating at night is hard, like no question about it. But do you have any advice in that category? I mean, for me, it's just, it's a constant awareness of my surroundings. More, you know, transitioning from day to night is, is being more aware of different terrain and key, key terrain within, within the area that I'm at. Um, that even in the darkness now, I'm recognizing different angles and changes uh, in terrain and environment and tree line that, they keep me kind of pinpointed into where I'm at. The other thing is, is just planning is knowing that before the sun goes down, I'm going to know exactly where I'm at, exactly where I'm going and begin to plot myself, uh, some, some attack points. I know that I've got to get to this basin. I know I've got to get to this Ridge and it's, and it's within a manageable distance that as long as I've got my heading, you know, pretty well figured out, um, I'm not, just meandering i'm not just wandering down the hillside i'm working myself to different attack points i set myself a backstop here or there to ensure that hey like if i hit this area and man i know i've got to transition or change direction and it's just breaking it up into small manageable pieces that backstop is a really critical portion of navigation whether it's daytime or nighttime but what he's talking about there folks is that you have some type of limiting feature and it might be a ridge line it might be a, a crick bottom something like that and you know okay if i get to this point i've gone too far and i need to stop and reevaluate everything about my life because i've done done wrong okay what about uh what about shooting you know i've had a bunch of uh i've had a bunch of snipers on the show i've had you know kind of the top end of the competitive shooters in the world on the show um everybody's got a different take on shooting and i think that, that running a gun is a, is a personal thing. What are some skills that you've learned as, as an operator and as a sniper over the last 19 years that, that you feel like could benefit hunters? Uh, I think it's probably to just shoot more, to be purposeful in practicing and becoming a master of the basics. Um, put yourself in situations and environments where it's not just I know it's not possible for everybody all the time, but seek it out, go and find, you know, events or venues or competitions that allow you to be tested so that the test, I mean, so that when you're faced with the ultimate test and preparing to harvest an animal, um, I mean, you've run that drill, you've run that shot, you've experienced that environment, uh, you know, before I, I've never, you know, I, I just, I hunt, I, I hunt some deer, some deer woods down in South Alabama. Um, I have not hunted all over. I'm very excited about beginning to learn how to hunt in this Western Montana terrain uh, and, and pursuing some, some elk and some mule deer. But uh, I know that in just general, you know, thought process, it immediately applies back to always being a master of the basics. And, you know, in my time in special forces, uh, the thousands to hundreds of thousands of rounds through the M4, 
you know, through the Glock or the Beretta, um, all that time begins to add up where, it, you know, you build those, those effective, good habits. Yeah. And, and I think something that you hit on there that's really important is to, to have good fundamentals to start with. Because if you go out and practice bad stuff, you you are getting better at doing the wrong thing. So practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So go find somebody <laughs> who can teach you the right thing and then get really good at that. Get really good at that. And I see it with, with athletes and almost every sport. When they get to the very highest level, what separates them is that they're brilliant at the basics. Their fundamentals are perfect. And there, there's this intermediate range of experience where people fall into the trap of being like, okay, I've got it. I've got the basics down. Now I'm going to try some of the advanced stuff. The advanced stuff should be getting better at the basics. A, a great example of this is, uh, is a wrestler named Kale Sanderson, first undefeated collegiate wrestler ever. In his final match, everyone knew that he was going to go out there and execute an ankle pick, including the guy that he was up against. And he went out there and executed an ankle pick and there was nothing he could do to stop it, you know, and that's, that's a fundamental basic move, but he had mastered it. And you can do that with shooting. Like you can be the master of the prone 300 yard shot and figure out everything about that basic shot. And buddy, that will take you wherever you want to go, you know, and you can, you can build off that, but that building will happen all on its own. So I, I just can't agree with you enough that that fundamentals and then practicing those fundamentals is, is very important. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I know I get caught up in, in life and here comes, you know, here comes hunting season, you know, take my bow, for example, there was a time where I knew that year round dots in the yard mattered and that every day it was going to be 15 arrows. And, you know, if it was good, it was good. If not, it would just shoot a couple more. Um, but it was, it was year round practice. And then, you know, life gets busy and you get distracted. And I, I know a couple of hunting seasons where, man, you know, archery seasons kicked off and <laughs> I'm like, Oh no, I haven't touched my bow surely I'm good enough. You know, I'll just go out in the yard, shoot, shoot a little while and, and get warm back up. But man, does it, uh, you know, it is a perishable skill <laughs> shooting in general. Doesn't matter what the, what the instrument is. And you can always learn more from somebody else. I was just out at the SIG Academy last week and felt very confident in the way that I grip a pistol. I, I felt so confident that the way that I do that is correct. And, you know, it was working for me. I was able to defend myself in the woods against bears. I was able to win in competitions. Uh, you know, I was satisfying my own accuracy on, on the target range. And I went out there and learned from Dylan Kennison, who's just an outstanding freaking human and the lead pistol instructor and, and the hunting instructor out there at SIG Academy. And there were some ways that I could improve. And I needed to be changing my grip a little bit, depending on the model of the gun that I was shooting. And that's something that I never even considered. Um, and that's a basic ass thing. And I just hadn't thought about it. And uh, I was more effective after, you know, a couple hours of learning from him than I was when I started. So I encourage people to seek out experts and learn from them as well. Yeah, 
definitely anytime you get an opportunity to get somebody else's perspective or experience and you know don't let ego get in the way i think that's a i mean i speak from personal experience of of being in a community of you know incredible warfighters within the special forces regiment and one of the biggest things that i that i have experienced and that i've seen is if guys letting ego get in the way of learning absolutely uh tell me about the two wolf foundation yeah so um some pretty significant life changes um when i left active duty in 2014 uh i gave up my career i was i was 12 years in um absolutely enjoying life i was filled on a daily basis with purpose and mission motivated uh, serving, you know, serving my country, serving my fellow teammates, my unit, uh, everything about life made sense. And some unfortunate circumstances related to family issues uh, resulted in me going through a pretty ridiculous divorce, uh, just extremely traumatic divorce, uh, tearing, you know, my kids away from me and some bad situations that they were being exposed to uh, was the byproduct of my life at war, you know, my life in war and in giving up that identity of being this, you know, the Green Beret and, and serving as a war fighter day in and day out and always having this thing that was driving me every day. All of a sudden I, I was left with nothing. I've done a lot of research on transition stress. I think I was hammered by it, but, uh, in that time period, the following, the years that followed my separation, um, I chased a bunch of different jobs, you know, and, and ended up as a SEER instructor and I was an Intel analyst and I was a dairy farmer, all these things. And they were all just grasping at straws to try to reinvent myself, to find new, new purpose, new meaning in, in what I'm supposed to do every day. Um, not to discount or discredit, you know, being a father or being a husband, but, uh, it, it just, after serving in the way that I did, I was really struggling with finding something that that filled me with that sense of continued service, even even as I was still <laughs> serving. Um, and in 2018, uh, I took a trip out to Washington to attend a uh, a course in Spokane, and I experienced the Pacific Northwest in general. I was shooting across the border into Idaho every, you know, every break that we had and just coming from South Alabama at the time, I, I was back in paradise. Um, and there was this call West, uh, in 2020 in October, my wife and I took a trip out to Montana at the suggestion of a good friend of mine in 10th special forces group. Uh, who was from the area in Northwest Montana. And we flew out here and, and spent some time. And we said, this is where we wanted to raise our family. Um, and the, the effort started, the, the planning and the uh, understanding of what that was going to take. And then shortly after our return from Montana, a good friend of mine from Fifth Group, uh, nearing the end of it, you know, was nearing retirement. Uh, some of his demons began to surface and I think a combination of post-traumatic stress uh, and transition stress culminated in this perfect storm of him 
really struggling uh, with his circumstances, with his life at that moment. And he was into the bottle pretty deep. And, uh, you know, those that were close to those of us that were close to him, you know, got involved and we did everything we could to intervene and change the trajectory of his path. And he ended up attending a training program presented by Boulder Crest Foundation called the Warrior Path Program. And Path is progressive and alternative training for healing heroes. And it focuses on post-traumatic growth. The idea that what doesn't kill us can make us stronger. Um, and we can get more into post-traumatic growth. I, I, I would love to. But to finish this story, he comes back from this training and, and I, this is a man transformed. This is one of my best friends in life. I've lived on his couch. He's lived on my couch. We've deployed together. We've served. I mean, we went through the Q course together and, uh, and he, an incredible warrior. Here was this man who was just absolutely struggling and returns from this training completely transformed his outlook on life, his understanding of his experiences. And I've had several other friends that have committed suicide. Um, and in that moment, it hit me that if, if what this did saved my friend's life, would it have saved my other fallen comrades' lives that have succumbed to suicide? And I immediately began investing everything I had into learning more about it. I went and attended the training myself and then ended up going to work for the Boulder Crest Foundation as a, as a warrior path guide, uh, an instructor in their training program, teaching the principles and education of post-traumatic growth. In that process, I realized that just as when I was a SEER instructor teaching patrolling, you know, behind enemy lines, and we're teaching a linear danger area crossing, I would always tell students, this is a, this is a way, not the way. And I realized that at the point that I was in my life and where I felt most spiritually fulfilled uh, and at peace was in the mountains, was in the woods, within nature. And I began to develop this concept that put the two together, an education or an exposure to post-traumatic growth and in natural wilderness environments. So about 18 months ago, I began the planning process and the development of what this would look like. And what resulted was an incredible vision to begin mobilizing our nation's military veterans and first responders, law enforcement officers, firefighters, EMS services, they're all part of the warrior tribe, uh, mobilizing them to serve in new ways through land stewardship and conservation. Uh, the wilderness is the venue, the conservation and stewardship side is the act of service, and the growth aspect is the ability to come together and, and connect with yourself, connect to your fellow warrior, uh, you know, tribe members, and, and connect to, you know, your communities ultimately is, is, the, is the byproduct of that. But I just realized that land stewardship and conservation the needs that are out there to continue to manage and protect and conserve and sustain these wilderness spaces. What an incredible group or community that, that we have as, as veterans and, and first responders to repurpose our, our lives of service 
in a way that that is continuing to be meaningful and two wolf foundation was born i love that you know i i went through something really similar myself um i got out in 2014 and i was hurt and i wasn't able to do the work on on the ranch that i'd you know done my whole life so i had to figure out something new and i'd been told for you know the last two years of of convalescence at wounded warrior battalion by all these medical professionals a long list of the things that i was never going to be able to do again and i had started to believe them fortunately the work that i got back into was guiding fly fishing with an emphasis on guiding veterans so at the time i was taking all the money that I made and then using that money to be able to take veterans out for free because I knew what was helping me and what was functioning for myself and, and making me healthier. And I wanted to give that to other people. And, and through that, I was able to, to grow the business and, and be able to, to take more people out and, and do all this stuff. But I never, I never took the step of, of creating a nonprofit so that I could really expand and dedicate to that it's more so something that I just feel compelled to do and, and continue to do on my own every, every year. And now I've, I've got wonderful partners like SIG, for example, who, who believe the same thing. And, and they're very invested in, in helping out veterans and first responders. And, and they use hunting and shooting as a tool to do that. When you add in the, the land stewardship aspect of it, that's, that's really unique and interesting. And I think that that venue is incredibly important. I went to college in Southwest Montana in, in Dillon. And we had a professor there, a geology professor who would have one class a week at night around a campfire. And the reason that he did that was because he believed that for most of human history, that was the venue for learning. So at the end of the day, everybody came back to the tribe. They had a fire that they could use for light to ward off predators, to cook their meat, and they talked about what happened. And, and that is the original classroom. I think that if you can replicate that in, in other ways by putting people into these wilderness settings and, and giving them a task and then giving them that task in that setting with a community of people who have an understanding of what they've been through and an acceptance of who they are, then you've got a really good opportunity at healing. Now I've had uh, I've had veterans in my life who have committed suicide too, and it is an ugly thing. It is a, a terribly ugly thing, and everybody around them really feels feels lost, and they feel a little bit less hope for themselves, and that they wish that they'd known so that they could do something. Uh, I've felt all those same things too. What I will say is that in, in all the veteran suicides that, that I'm aware of, you know, that have occurred in my life, the cocktail seems to have three recipes and it is prescription drugs, a toxic relationship and alcohol. And if you're feeling yeah. bluesy, like, like you just can't make it through another day and it's not worth your time. And you have those three things in your life, try taking one of them out and, and, and just check back in tomorrow. Like if, if you don't want to call somebody or, or do that, like cut out one of those things and you're going to be a lot better off. Yeah. I mean, when, when we look at the experience, you know, the, the experiences in life and in particular uh, a life of combat, 
for example, the combat veteran or the service member um, put into extremely stressful situations and manage, manage those with absolute professionalism in the heat of the moment. But there's this drive and there's this purpose and there's this mission to achieve in those environments or circumstances. You are, you are driven by the, the, the motivation to not let down your fellow teammates or your, you know, your, the members of your platoon or your team or your squad. And, and then there's this higher level serving a cause, the accomplishment of the mission. And in, in my life, when I was struggling the most and felt without any worth, I, I legitimately, on a daily basis, felt like I didn't have a mission to accomplish. Yeah, I had a job or gainful employment, but it, it wasn't resonating in the way that I had previously experienced. And that was until I found uh, land stewardship and, and conservation in general. The immersive healing aspects of being in nature, man, proven time and time again with scientific research that the physiological and psychological changes, positive changes that come from spending time in nature. But then when I, when I began to envision or what I began to feel myself was that when I would go out and participate in a land stewardship project, a trail maintenance project, or where, you know, a park cleanup, there's this feeling of self-worth accomplishment and service in the after, you know, at the conclusion of that, all of those things then generated the additional motivation to continue to be engaged. And, and for me and for two wolf foundation, um, I, I have just had this calling that said, I've got to figure out a way to build this into an opportunity that we and bring our tribe together and serve in this way that that begins to spread positive impact rather than the sharing of victimhood. Oh, you got PTSD? Yeah, man, I got, you know, I'm all messed up. And the, how many pills, how many prescriptions are you on? What they give you? And, uh, and I just want to migrate or give an, an avenue of growth and wellness away from prescription pills and um, you know, pharmacology and psychology are, are crazy things, but in my personal experience and seeing guys work through, uh, the healthcare systems and behavioral health and mental health and man, just every one of my friends that's gone downhill, like you said, there's, it's, it's substance, alcohol or pills, toxic relationship, and, uh, and just a mix of a, of a, <laughs> miscued emotion maybe <laughs> well it's it's hard it's so hard man i you know and and i've been i've been at those those events where dudes are kind of comparing you know how bad off they are and honestly they scared the crap out of me but i was on 22 different prescriptions simultaneously and i replaced all of those with hunting and fishing year round and i'm way better off now like way better yeah. off. That was terrible. I cannot believe that medical professionals allowed that to happen. I was never awake. I was never asleep. I couldn't do anything. I was absent from my own life. It was bonkers. And I just had enough 
cognitive ability that I could see what it looked like in the guys that were further down that road that I was on. And it scared me enough to get off all those things. And it was freaking hard to do, but I did it. I'm better off now. And I've replaced that stuff with the outdoors and with helping people in the outdoors. And I, I, I just, I think that you're doing the right thing there. This, this is something that I feel really strongly about. If somebody else feels strongly about this and they want to help out our first responder and our veteran community, help out with land stewardship and the Two Wolf Foundation, how can they get more involved? Yeah, um, the website, twowolf.org, um, has a majority of our information and there's, you know, there's an opportunity to give on there. We have, you know, to take in donations. Uh, we have our, our 501c3 paperwork is in the wind right now. The federal government is pretty backed up, according to uh, the uh, friends that we have working our paperwork. Apparently, they're working like June, July of 2021 right now. Um, but our, we, we formed and incorporated and our, our board of directors convened in February of this year. And from that moment forward, after filing with the state of Montana, we are legally allowed to accept donations and it be tax deductible. Um, so there is that that added benefit. But, you know, what what I'm really looking for is, is building deeper connections and relationships with individuals that recognize um, the impact that can be made both for the warrior and for the land. Our main focus is on is on public land. Um, is is executing land stewardship programs and projects on on u.s public lands national forests national parks bureau of land management land land that gets used and abused and, and a lot taken from it and i think that the i think the warrior tribe is is the perfect community to rise up and and really begin to serve that land in in some majorly beneficial ways um and then we're, you know, we're on Instagram at, at Two Wolf Foundation is where we primarily uh, push information about upcoming events or uh, things going on with the organization. But uh, we're, we're building. We're young. We're in our infancy. And I am just I'm hoping to begin to get the word out and and that this thing take hold. I know the nonprofit world is uh, oversaturated. Maybe, you know, is, is the right word. There's a lot of organizations out there trying to do a lot of good things. I'm just trying to recognize where I believe I can bring people together to make an impact and 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 just have faith in uh, in the vision. So, well, I, I know that, you know, this given your your experience, but if you keep working at it, it'll succeed. Yeah, I <laughs> the. My, my family has been incredibly supportive in this. It was middle of June last year when I said, this need, this is what I'm called to do. Quit my job at Fort Benning, uh, where I was, you know, a, a contract intelligence analyst. And we sold our house. We moved back to our, the family farm in Alabama. Uh, you know, I put my family of four in a two bed, two bedrooms, one bath with the idea of, we're doing whatever it takes and whatever is necessary to begin to build this thing. And then ultimately uh, relocating out West and, and getting here to Montana and surrounded by 
the incredible venues and landscapes in which I hope we get the opportunity to to start bringing uh, our fellow, you know, veterans and first responders. I look out the window every day and, and first thing in the morning is just inspiration and I'm captivated by the mountains surrounding me. And I know that that feeling lies within every one of, you know, my fellow brothers and sisters in arms and first responders and law enforcement officers, where as much negativity in the world, as much hate as we've seen, as much violence as we've been exposed to or been a part of, uh, there are moments of extreme beauty and peace. And I just see it in mountains. And I, and I want to share that as much as I can. Well, good on you, brother. I'm proud of you. And, uh, and, and be safe in what you got coming up. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Alrighty, sir. Well, thank you again for your time. And folks, I encourage you to get involved. This is worth your time. It's a good way to help other people. It's a good way to help other places. And there's links for everything that Brian just talked about down there in the podcast description. Thank you again, sir. All right, James. I, I really appreciate it. And, I, and thank you for allowing me to spend some time having a conversation. Absolutely. So I found this old ad and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and, you know, they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff. Aladdin Stanley Thermos. Stanley, the tough, all steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable. They're showing this thermos like falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff. And built to take a bounding year after year. Get the top one. Well, it lands in a wheelbarrow. The guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like, they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be was just, like, telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But I'll tell you what, when it's cold out like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated so packing a thermos in the winter time is really smart whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh in this snow that we've got all over the country and i think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about you know this is both a comfort and a safety thing if you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH. That's the number 6 in the word ranch, and that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website. I encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience, and I love you guys. So stay warm out there, have a nice warm drink, and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.